I'm going to read two short passages and then pray and then speak, if that's all right. Opening words of Philippians. Paul, Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace, peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. And then just, if I can for a moment, go to... Matthew chapter 13, again, just a few verses from there. Starting at verse 31 of Matthew 13. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it becomes the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Lord, open our eyes to see you. Unblock our ears to hear you, but soften our hearts to receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul, I, I found increasingly that I wanted to pause at the prayers of Paul and the prayers of Jesus. And find actually that our own prayers begin to get transformed by the way Jesus prays and by the way Paul prays. And actually the things we might come of our own inclination and bring to the Lord, and I think the Lord loves us to bring things to him. But actually if we allow the way Paul prays and the way Jesus prays to begin to inform us, we begin, I think, to find we're starting to pray like Jesus is praying, which I think is the essence of the Christian life. For it's not my story and somehow wanting God's help with how I live and my story. It's actually me beginning to allow myself to live as part of God's story, part of who the Lord is, part of being drawn into what he's doing. The extraordinary thing about healing on the streets is not that individuals are given the gift of healing, but that you allow yourself and the person sitting in that chair to become part of what God is doing. <coughs> part of a mustard seed planted in the ground that all by itself develops something beyond our capacity to imagine. And that, I think, is the essence of the kingdom of God. 
of how the Lord works. That it is about living in the present, not living with the nostalgia of the past, saying if only our church was like it was 30 years ago, things would be amazing. I think that is heretical. I think God works now in the present. That's, that's the truth of the incarnation. It's the truth of God coming and living amongst us, one with us from the womb to the tomb, one with us through every experience of human life. And you and I are called to live that life now. I love reading the first four Gospels, uh, the first four books of the New Testament. I think the biography of Jesus, for me, remains, after 50 years of reading it, the most compelling thing I can ever read. And when I'm working with people perhaps new to the faith, I encourage them. Pick one of these Gospels. Actually, if you want a quick read, pick Mark's Gospel. 45 minutes, you can read the whole Gospel. And then read it again and again and again. And enter into the story of Jesus. Or read Luke if you're a bit more uh, sort of organized in how your mind works. If you don't want to go, if you're slightly like me and got a slight um, lack of concentration, then Mark's great. You go from one thing to the next to the next. And somehow the Lord speaks. But if you're a bit more organized, just dwell in Luke's gospel and you'll find the geography. You'll find the sort of coherent story built bit by bit. And you get to a town. By the time you get to Luke chapter 19, you get to the town of Jericho. Jericho, it looks to me, was the first healing on the streets place, wasn't it? Bartimaeus at the gate of Jericho. And Bartimaeus is desperate. He's blind. He's not only blind, he cannot work. He cannot work and therefore he cannot eat. He needs all of it. He needs the Tesco's blue tokens. He needs the healing on the streets. And he hears Jesus is coming to Buckskin that day. Sorry, Jericho. (laughs) And Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus is desperate to meet Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus the son of Joseph. And so he starts to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the elders get really upset. You know, it is now 1029, and the service at Buckskin is about to start. And this man is disrupting us. Be quiet. Will Ross is too busy today. He's got other things to do. And the more the elders tell Bartimaeus, the disciples tell Bartimaeus to be quiet, the more he shouts, Jesus, have mercy on me. And then to his surprise, Jesus stops in front of him. There can be nothing more dramatic, can there? You know, the crowd is surging into town and Jesus stops in front of Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? He asks. That's an extraordinary model for us. You know, we we think we've got our speech ready to speak to the unbeliever. 
We think we've got words that I must get in while I have the chance. Jesus is very confident that God is already at work. Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? I want to see, he says. Taking, I think he mixes some spit and some mud. It's a bit bizarre, isn't it? But then just places, places his um, hands on his eyes. And he can see. And then, I think probably just a few minutes later, he's in the town square. And there's a nasty man in the town square called Zacchaeus. Nasty because he's colluded with the Roman authorities. Nasty because the way a tax collector made their living was that you had a target, a key performance target. You know, you collect this amount of money and everything over it is yours to keep. Hugely motivating, isn't it? You know, you will work and then you start picking on people to get the money up until your pocket is full. But not only has he made himself wealthy, he's colluded with the people everyone hates, the Roman occupying authority. He's short, he cannot see. And the rest of the population see this is our chance. This is our chance to sort him. And they block his view. All the Matthews of this world stand in front of him. So he cannot see. But Zacchaeus is now desperate just to catch sight of Jesus. And he climbs a tree. I mean, utterly ridiculous for a wealthy man, man of stature in a community to climb a tree. But it shows you what his heart, how desperate he is. And to his surprise, Jesus again, like with Bartimaeus, stops in front of him, looks up, and says, come down, I'm coming to your house. What extraordinary. By the end, we, I mean, I get cross with Luke, don't you? I want the conversation. What happened? What, what did he say to Zacchaeus? You know, please, can we have the speech? Can we have, did no one hear it? Why has Luke chosen not to record what happened? But we see the impact. Because by nightfall, by the evening, Zacchaeus has said, I'm repaying every, everything four times over that I've taken from you that I shouldn't. I'm repaying fourfold anything I've taken illegally or immorally from you. And then half of everything that is left, I'll give to the poor. Two lives, utterly transformed. That day. And then I get cross with Luke again. I want to know what happened the next week. The next month. What happens when the poorest, most desperate man in the community meets with Jesus? And what happens when the wealthiest, rather greedy, rather unpleasant man meets with Jesus? What happens in that community after that? And we don't know. And I, I was in front of, I hope I haven't told this story here before. <laughs> I was in front of a, a group of 13-year-old boys a couple of years ago teaching Luke's gospel. And I said exactly that. I just want to know. Story after story in Luke's gospel, I want to know what happens next. And 13-year-old Hamish 
says, Bishop, it is obvious. Oh, really? Bishop, it's obvious. The story gets finished in your life and in mine. And isn't that what this is all about? This story, this irresistible story of the kingdom of God gets finished in our lives in buckskin in December 2022. The story gets finished in our lives because that's the work of God in Christ through the power of the Spirit. Yes, there are extraordinary things that we have to learn. And that's why the scriptures are here, aren't they? That we might know Jesus better. That we might know his character, his personality. We might know his priorities. We might know the heart of God. Not that we are simply about good deeds, but that we are about the kingdom of God in our midst. However fragile, we talk of church decline in numbers. But actually the kingdom of God never seems to be about those things. It seems to be about faith. I've taught uh, the parables in a number of different cultures around the world because I find that these stories travel through every culture. They are, I think, the most extraordinary aspect of Jesus' teaching. And so there are two tiny, smallest parables in all of Jesus' teaching. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. And if I had thought a little more about my preparation, I would now have handed you all a mustard seed. And you'd be looking at something you could hardly see. Maybe you'd find a tiny seed at home and plant it and look after it and see what happens. But the mustard seed that becomes a tree, the mustard seed that is just like a bit of dust that we would normally just sweep into the bin, Lettuce seed might be similar. You know, I've got uh, thousands of lettuce seeds. The only problem is I don't ever plant them. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed planted in the soil. And all by itself, it brings life. What's the mustard seed that we will see in front of us as a church and as individuals? Actually, a hundred different stories across this room over the next few days. For surely that is how God is at work. I think the yeast is also amazing because yeast is, again, like just a tiny, almost uh, almost unrecognizable little bit of dust. And I have occasionally rung a bakery and asked for a bakery van to come full of bread and 60 pounds of flour stood at the front of church and a bit of dust and then the van drives up and we unload the van and bring hundreds of loaves of bread which is the amount you produce from this tiny bit of yeast. These are the parables of the kingdom of God. That God doesn't need mighty things and huge resources. But God needs men and women who will see the signs of the kingdom, even in the smallest, unrecognizable things. 
So, well, I've sort of tried to answer your question. But what is the Lord doing in 2022 in our lives? Are we living wistfully hoping for the nostalgia of the past to be reenacted in our midst? Or are we wistfully hoping that revival, yes, well, let's pray for the revival, but I don't think that's the driving force. That might be in God's heart, and we might sometimes find in our prayers we're caught up in it. I think what's happening is now in our midst. And so if I return for a minute to Philippians. I first met Will Ross before I met Buckskin. And Paula, who was one of our church members, is in your midst. And Claire, who was one of my church members, one of vicar, is in your midst. But we did get Jake. <laughs> <coughs> But isn't that the beauty of the family of God? Isn't that the mutuality? Isn't that, you know, the hidden church of Christ? That our connections are not really denominational ones. They're connections out of our relationship to Christ. Our mutual commitment to see the kingdom of God and to see it grow. And so I find myself praying these opening verses of Philippians for you as a church here. And I want to say this with all honesty and all integrity. I'm proud to know you as a church. I think there are many things that the Lord is doing in your midst that are really quite extraordinary and exemplary that you have stepped out in faith time and time again. And have seen the Lord answer. You've had an impact. As so many churches have. Way beyond. The immediate geography. Of your place. And God is at work. I thank my God every time. I remember you. In all my prayers for you. I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership. In the gospel from the first day until now. And I am confident of this, that God who has begun a good work in you will carry it to completion. We've been through, as a nation, the beginning, I think, of some of the toughest days in generations. Maybe since the Second World War. We face a recession and we face an economic change in our lives. And it seemed to me that if the pandemic challenged our notions of, of immortality, you know, that somehow the, our doctors and our health service will keep us alive forever, that we can go on having operations into our 90s and we can live into our hundreds with confidence... And then a virus with no treatment strikes our world. People, things we had taken for granted as the very foundation of our lives were stripped away. If the years of economic growth and of increasing prosperity for our nation 
have given us a set of presuppositions and a security that meant we would expect to have more money year after year. And those of us that are Christians will say, oh, we, pastor, we can just increase our giving year after year. And the pastor, without realizing it, gets caught up with our own economic prosperity as well. What if that is also gone? And it may well have gone. It looks almost inevitable that the next few years will be financially very, very challenging. The most vulnerable will be the hardest hit, but all of us will find the assumptions we've lived by are no longer there. But what if all of that actually points us to a deeper place in Christ? What if it uncovers a superficiality about our Christian faith where blessings and prosperity seem to have got caught up together when actually the Lord is saying there's a different story at work and it's the story of the kingdom of God. It's a story of a mustard seed and it's a story of some yeast that transforms the world we live in. Where does our hope rest in? Well, our worship this morning pointed us repeatedly to Jesus. And I am convinced more than ever before in my life that it is his story that is the real history. It is his story that I want to live within. It is his story that has not only an impact here and now, but an impact for eternity. I was traveling on a bus in northern Uganda a few years ago, and I started at five o'clock in the morning. And I was sat across the aisle from what looked like a very devout man. And the bus, it was one of those things, maybe some of you experienced this. The bus is very muted until well after sunrise. People are respecting that they are still tired and they're napping a bit in their seats. But gradually, by about 7, 7.30 in the morning, the bus starts to come to life. And people share their breakfast and, and there's a sort of comfort stop an hour or so later. And I noticed the gentleman across the aisle starting to pray. And I realized here's a devout Muslim gentleman And his day, as the journey went on, was framed by his reading and his praying. And I was challenged as a Christian. Uh, Thankfully, I I did have my Bible just in front of me in the seat. And I was challenged by the Lord, I think. Look, your Muslim brother is praying so seriously. Anyway, I started reading. And I started reading John's Gospel. And then to my surprise the Muslim across the road offered me some breakfast and asked me what I was reading. And I talked, I said, I'm reading John's Gospel. And then for five hours, he proceeded to try to convert me to Islam in a way I had never experienced in my life from John's Gospel. Talking about the comforter, the one who's to come, the paraclete in our New Testament study, Talk about how this was Muhammad, peace be upon him. This was. <laughs> and um, the conversation became really quite robust to the point the whole coach was listening. 
And they watched this, I have my dog collar on, they watched this priest with the imam having this very robust conversation about eternity, about paradise. And I found myself, you know, arguing, and, you know, he, Muslim evangelist talks about Paul being the great deceiver. And that actually Paul messed us up according to his own understanding. And so the debate went on. Until he talked, he was emotional now and he was crying and saying, but, but you're my friend now. I want you in paradise with me. It's very easy. You just submit to Allah. And there were tears coming down his face. And the bass was listening. <laughs> and I turned and I don't know why I'd been so slow. Whether the spirit sort of enabled this. I just said, my brother... I know I'm going to be in paradise. I'm going to be in paradise not because of my life, not because of my giving to charity, not because of my submission to Allah, but because Christ, Jesus Christ, stands in my place. Because Jesus, the perfect one, enables me, the imperfect one. Jesus, the one who has taken my sins upon him, allows me, the sinful one, to be forgiven. And the door to heaven, the door to paradise is open because of the one perfect man who died in my place that my eternity is secure. The bus started to praise. I think they thought, at last, he's... (laughs) At last. But the serious point, and I tell you this story, it's not for our sake of nostalgia. The serious thing is, what is our confidence in the past, the present, and the future? It is Jesus and what he has done for us. It is Jesus who points to the kingdom of God and says, it's here in our midst. Let's open our eyes and let's walk today by faith. I went to... Kenya for a week because I was very, very tired and um, my daughter wanted me to take a diving course with her. She lives there. And it was amazing. And I slept deeply and I felt, I didn't feel tired for the first time in two or three years. But every single time I traveled, (laughs) I sat next to someone and I thought, I'm not going to speak, I just need to go on sleeping. (laughs) But every time, It was as though the Lord said, no, you're in the present. It's now. Whatever you feel like, it's now that I'm at work. And so, as you enter next Sunday, Advent Sunday, as you prepare spiritually, you know, it's like Lent for us Anglicans. I'm sure lots of you have got Anglican heritage. But it's it's a season of just saying, Lord, where are you? Lord, where am I? Lord, what do I need to repent of? What do I need to put right? What should I pick up spiritually in the midst of the commercial season? What is it I want to hang on to? And as you come to Christmas Day, you declare the single transforming truth that God is in Christ in this little baby. Here we are. Let me borrow him. (laughs) I knew it would come. Eh? He might throw up. Do be my guest. Be my guest. 
No, 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 I have that as well, just in case. Barnaby. Barnabas, the encourager. The truth of, God, of, of, of our, our extraordinary gospel is that God came into the world as a baby. Vulnerable beyond belief. God came into the world as a human baby. And that crib, that, that wooden crib that we so often put out for our Christmas services, extraordinary symbol of vulnerability. He left this world on a cross 33 years later. Nailed to a, nailed to a cross. Symbol of vulnerability. How can a major world faith be based on symbols of utter vulnerability? A crib and a cross. But that's it, isn't it? It's not a, power, it's not a humanly powerful thing. It's not a humanly successful thing. But in these moments, God meets with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And so my expectation is that the Lord who's begun a great work in you will complete it, people of buckskin, because it's he that is doing the work. Amen. Amen.